This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's digmeoutunion.com. Jay, we're back with another poll episode. It's our September poll. Yay. Woot. We had a we had a, a wide selection of stuff that was familiar and not familiar at all. So Yeah. And a reminder, we do this every month. You can go on the website. And suggest an album. Yep. We uh, pull eight at a time and then uh, put them to our patrons for a vote. And once a month, we're here we are reviewing a record. Yep. And you don't have to be a patron to make the selection. No. You can just make the selection or, you know, make your pick and and send the email and or, or the fill out the form. And there you go. So we had eight. Album suggested. Let's run through the poll and give you the results of who was on it and where everybody finished. Finishing last, no votes, the band Pound with Same Old Life. One vote for Slaves on Dope, One Good Turn Deserves Another. With three votes, the best album title in the list, The Sultans of Ping FC Casual Sex in the Cineplex. <laughs> Tied it. I, just, I, I think I need to hear that just based on the title. Just see what's going on. I, yeah, eventually. Um, no, with four votes, Walleye's Familiar Forgotten, and then tied with five votes, of course, Mark Curry's It's Only Time. For, not the first time we've seen Mark Curry. Probably not the last. And then Journey's Trial by Fire, which would have made an interesting, was my personal hope, because I've never listened to that record, but it didn't get it didn't make it. And that's the last Steve Perry record and produced by Kevin Shirley, if you're familiar with his work. So that's promising. He's a pretty good producer. Interesting. Well, what year was that released? Was that like 95 or 96? It was like 90, mid- 96. It was the first record since uh, Raison Radio in 86. Yeah. Interesting. So the second place vote getter was Modest Mouse. The Lonesome Crowded West. I thought this might win based on the fact that we had just done a Modest Mouse roundtable for the Origins episode. And people maybe were like, give me more Modest Mouse. But I also thought, well, maybe people are sick of Modest Mouse. Let's do something else. I want Journey. We didn't get either of those. (laughs) The winner ended up being World of Noise by Everclear with about 33% of the overall vote. A plurality, but not a majority. Jay, who was the suggestor for Everclear's World of Noise? A uh, longtime friend of the show, Gary Miron. And what did he have to say upon his submission? I have a real soft spot for everything Everclear recorded in the 90s. What sets this album apart is that it came before success irrevocably changed the band's sound. Before they started rewriting Santa Monica a few times for each album, they were a noisy DIY punk band at heart. World of Noise was a demo recorded at a friend's house for $400. Alex Alexakis. Alexakias. Sorry. Art Alex. Alex, What is it? Alexakias? 
Alexa, Alexa, pause. <laughs> did I just set up your Alexa? Y- yeah. No, no, no. I did when I said his last name. I just set off my personal assistant. Uh, Art Alexakis? Alexakias. <laughs> but there's no Kias. Alexa, pause. No. Uh, it, when I say that, she says... Shuffling songs by Caius. <laughs> right, because you're saying Caius. Right. Anyway, only had one guitar and a half-fried amp that would squeal and feedback while he was playing, giving the songs a ramshackle intensity not found on later recordings. It is worth revisiting as a reminder that before becoming synonymous with generic alternative rock radio, Everclear was far from it. He also mentioned in the comments, he said, I love 90s Everclear, and I stand by this album. Bring it on, Jay. Oh, boom. Straight dropping fire right at you. Why am I getting called out? Because you're the bad cop. Remember from the comments we received, I'm the straight guy, and you're the bad cop. So obviously you're going to. Some of the other comments we received over at our Patreon page, Scott Witt said, I choose Journey for the oddballness of it. It was tough not choosing Sultans for their album name. I agree. That was a great album name. Davey Bright, Walleye's Familiar Forgotten gets my vote. I have been listening to that album for close to 25 years. Jade Tree Records were on fire back then. So many great releases. Funny enough, a track from this album came up on Shuffle this week and maybe reached for the album off the shelf. Johnny Hooper said The Lonesome Crowded West is a 90s masterpiece. If you hear songs of alienation, in it you hear songs of alienation that could uh, could have been written by a delusion kid who grew up in the Pacific Northwest. You can so clearly hear how the next generation interpreted Cobain on this record. Compelling both lyrically and musically, vote early and often. Ian Wobble, Sultans of Ping, one of the great lost bands of the early 90s, easily could have been bigger if they came from London and lumped in with the Brit pop lot, or possibly because the band are too varied and funny. They missed the mark. I really hope we don't end up with another episode of people talking about Modest Mouse again. (laughs) Patrick Testa, I'm voting for Sultans of Ping. This album is all over the place with no obvious cohesion, but I like listening to the songs on it just now. Keith Sawyer says, Lonesome Crowd of West is the clear leader for me. Love that album. Stem to stern, it has such an urgent, nervous, contagious energy. Though Journey's Trial by Fire is high on the curiosity list for me, it was actually a very sizable hit at the time. I didn't know that. I guess VH1 was still around at that point, in in its prime. Well, I mean, don't forget, that's a band that always has access to, you know, more adult, contemporary sure, sure. kind of ballady radio, so... And then finally, we finally get someone besides Gary talking about Everclear, and that's Jason Pan. He says, while it doesn't make me record store cool in retrospect, if I'm honest, at high school around 1997, Everclear were my favorite band. One of the first artists I ever bought records of, and so World of Noise probably was in the first half dozen albums I ever owned. While it sounds like it was recorded on a potato, (laughs) (laughs) okay, it actually works in its favor in retrospect as it demonstrates a bit more of the fire after about 1997 people forgot the band had when the budget and the studio time allowed for art to head down the overproduced pop road he took the band on later. Songs like Loser made good and Fire Maple Song in later eras got morphed into better acoustic versions that were kinder 
to the songs, but nervous and weird and sick and tired still have a good bit of fight in them that comes out in the hasty recording. About the only Everclear album where the bass guitar does something more interesting than back up the power chords, see Sick and Tired and Malevolent, assume the streaming rights are wrapped up in some Tim Kerr record label issues, which is a pity, as at home I still pull this one out of the CD cabinet occasionally. Interesting. I have not, I didn't I have the MP3s, so I didn't check if uh if it was streaming or not. I just put it in my iTunes it to It is not. Hmm. Interesting. So Jay, let's talk about this album. Released in nineteen ninety three. It was mentioned on it was originally released on Tim slash Kerr label and then was reissued by Capitol in nineteen ninety four. Uh, prior when the band signed and then prior to the release of their second album sparkle and fade in 1995 now they did release an ep prior to this called nervous and weird which included a couple of songs that would be uh that would make the album that came out in may of 93 and the lineup for this band is uh art obviously lead guitar vocals Craig Montoya on bass. Craig would be the bass player up until 2003. He played on all the big albums. Um, Scott Cuthbert on drums. He was only on this record, and then he was replaced by Greg Eklund, who would be the drummer for Sparkle and Fade up until 2003. Him and Craig Montoya left the band at the same time. Side note, I met Craig Montoya. I met Greg Eklund, the drummer, at the 19... I guess it was 1997 CMJ in New York. Just walking around. <laughs> I didn't know okay. who he was. And my cohort, Mr. John Riccardi at WFAL said, that's the drummer from Everclear. And we said hi, and we were playing the records and that kind of stuff. So that's cool. my only Everclear story. My wife's Everclear story is she saw them play with Bare Naked Ladies and Guster in Cleveland and she said that Everclear were extremely disrespectful on stage of the audience. And she has hated the band ever since. <laughs> wow. Now, I don't, mean? I don't, what do you mean? Like they were mocking the audience and being mean. Oh. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of people through this band. I'm not going to go through all the other members. They are responsible for the Summerland tour that goes around the country now. I don't know if you're aware of that, Jay, but it's basically like a bunch of 90s bands like Sugar Ray and Lit and Marcy Playground and Gin Blossoms and Live and Filter and Sponge. And they only they don't play like a full set. They play like their best, like known, like seven or eight songs. So they, they do like a lot of bands, but short sets of just hits. Gotcha. And... This record has not been reissued, but the following albums, Sparkle and Fade and So Much for the Afterglow, have both been reissued uh, on 180 gram vinyl if you want to pick those things up. So, what did you... Katie just uh, messaged me while we were while we we're talking here. Oh, she said, saw them in Columbus. They were arrogant because they said their music was, quote, fucking huge. <laughs> okay she can apparently hear me from the i'm I, by the way i'm now broadcasting from a new location i have moved I, i've been allowed to graduate out of the basement i'm now in the office which is on the first floor of the house oh i liked you in the basement 
Oh, thanks. <laughs> Was there better just, acoustics? I don't know. It just seemed like more authentic. Oh, okay. Well, you're this big, way you're I, big shot now. I used to have to take my studio. laptop off of my work desk and carry it downstairs into oh, the basement. Oh, my God. And now I just get to leave my laptop exactly where I do my editing. Oh, carrying around a laptop. How did you do it? Well, I would unplug everything and then I would fold the laptop up and I'd throw my, you know, mouse and headphones on top and then I would, and then my cord and I'd go downstairs and then I would plug in the mic downstairs. Right. It was really simple, actually. But now I don't have to do that. I need to get some baffling in this. Is it baffling? Is that what that's called when you get the, you know, the sound absorption? We're off on a weird point. You, you sound tangent. the same. So. Okay. I don't hear any echo or any kind of reverb. Jay, since you own this record, and now you've come back to it, tell me one thing you liked about World of Noise by Everclear. Well, you own it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you own a uh, physical copy. No, I no, just no, have... no. I own the MP3s. I own the MP3s. Oh, okay. I thought you had a CD. No. Okay. Yeah, no, I came up with the CDs. At, at, or, I'm sorry, the MP3s at some point. Uh, these are the only... Everclear MP3s that are in my library that I have possession of. What do I like? I, you know, I do think he has a u- unique um, voice. I think he has a unique take on, um, you know, writing pop songs. I think essentially that's what he sort of you hear on this record, and he eventually, you know, refined into um, to to many of our dismay um, a formula. Mm-hmm. But you can hear that here. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, they're playing in a formula, it's, you know, a format that's pretty well established and simple. But for the most part, uh, he's able to sound pretty unique. Uh, you know, there's a couple songs in here that sound like Nirvana to me. Nervous and Weird is a good example. Mm-hmm. I Outside of those, I do like the the pop format. A lot of energy. It is noisy. I'll get into that later. And it's you know it's familiar, but still original. Uh, I think with the way that he sings and just his voice, um, I think the see overall like energy of the band. I guess I don't know any word, but what better way to put it? They kind of have a punk attitude over where you know at times either mid-tempo alternative rock songs or power punk songs or you know pop punk songs you know i think the the combination there is is uh successful you know when it works and that you get that i guess nirvana formula right you get like pop songwriting with a really aggressive high energy kind of punk attitude so i think there's definitely moments on this album where that all comes together and mm-hmm. i think that works the best I agree with you on like nervous and weird, but it sounds more like Bleach era Nirvana than say the more polished Nevermind. Yeah. 
era, yeah. which I appreciate because I I like Bleach as much as I like Nevermind or in, in Utero for different reasons because of that edginess. I forgot how familiar I am with this record. I thought that I only knew Fire Maple Song because we played it at the radio station and I was a big fan when it came out of Sparkle and Fade. I liked that whole record. I learned to play the guitar to a lot of that record. And then I completely lost interest once I heard the follow-up singles on So Much for the Afterglow and realized, oh, he's just taking the Santa Monica riff and like repeating it over and over again. And I just didn't want like Father of Mine and Yeah. Those those just did not work for me. So I my interest went from a hundred to zero real fast because they felt like they were taking quote unquote grunge and the the soft you know loud verse chorus dynamic and they were just doing something just a little bit different like you said it they kind of sound like nirvana a little bit but they they really don't and i think a lot of it has to do with his worldview and the way he sings he's almost yep. got like a twang with some of his singing which is weird yeah yeah you um, can hear what seems like a southern kind of thing going on in his the way he phrases things sometimes and I know that in reading his um, history, he didn't grow up in one place. He had a, a broken family, and he moved around the country constantly, and spent a lot of time as a as a teen in Los Angeles before be- relocating to San Francisco, and then ending up in Portland, where this band essentially formed. He was in bands previous to this when he was in like in you know younger. But this is what the first band that sort of made an impact. And when I listened to like Fire Maple Song, man, that doesn't sound like anybody at the time. That doesn't sound like Nirvana. It's got yeah. it, it, when I was listening to that, I was like, this sounds like uh like what I would expect like John Fogarty to sound like if he was in grunt in a grunge band. <laughs> like Oh it, yeah. It has like this weird southern feel to it. I don't I don't know how to s- describe it other than that, but he's got a bit more worldly sound to his vocal. And it comes up a couple other times where it just, it has like this kind of twang is the only way I can put it. Lying down in the grass with the wind around us as we smile and talk Listen to your grandma sing those country songs she tell us how the maple turns to fire Every four years I appreciated that, especially song like he, they never really or he never really approached in terms of songwriting uh, a song like Fire Maple Song. That slow burn, the build throughout the song, it's built around that really cool repetitive riff that he's got going. And like what was mentioned in the comments, there's actually some real interesting bass stuff that goes on in some of these songs like Malevolent and... I just like the energy of this record. I know it doesn't sound polished, but for a $400 recording, 
1993, 94, it gets across everything. The drums sound not great, but the guitar sounds... It, it doesn't sound brittle. There's some beef there. And it just sounds like a band, you know, with a lot of energy. He's got a lot to, of anger to get out. You can tell in the lyrics. I mean, there's a lot of anger. And he gets it out. And that that roughness of the music helps support the, the anger in his lyrics. Yeah. So... That, a lot of it worked for me. And it's a short record, too. It's only like 33 minutes. I think Fire Maple Song is the, is the only song that goes over four minutes, just over four minutes. Sick and Tired is just under four minutes, but everything else is in the two to, you know, basically two to three minute range. So it's it's very condensed. They get through a lot of stuff very quickly. And... I, there wasn't a particular song where I thought, oh, they really they missed the mark on this particular song. I think there's some songs that are maybe not as developed as other ones, but everything's got like its own unique little feel, which I like. Yep. So yeah, and you can hear, um, you know, fairly I don't know sophisticated, but uh, uh, nuanced things going on with some of the songwriting too, which is. You you hear the seeds of that. You can hear where the band eventually goes in some ways. Uh, you know, in terms of the production, I don't know that I have any issue with the way that the instruments are re- recorded. I think my my issue is how it's mixed. It's all like it's almost mono. Like it's all in the center. There's no separation. Yeah. Um, I would just like to hear a little bit more. Like you know, push one of those guitars to the left or right because he does some lead stuff too on here. Um, mm-hmm. and double double guitar parts. I think that's my biggest issue with the record. Uh, so it's particularly like at the top. So your genius hands and sick and tired and laughing world. I think those are the most, um, noisiest, I think for me, um, you, you, the record starts that way. Um, and it takes a minute to get like acclimated to his voice and more, more so just to be able to pull it out from those guitars, which can be a little harsh, especially when they're mixed like right down the middle with the voice. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you on that. When it opens up in like Fire Maple Song where you get – it's just dynamically, I think, a little quieter so you can you can absorb it a little easier. And then when it comes to the build, you're kind of ready for it. And then the guitars are a little bit more in the like mid-range or low mid-range, which – just fight with the vocal less. Um, so th- there's some, I think there's some songs in here where it works okay, fine, the way it's produced. And there's others that I think it could be better if it's just if it was just remixed. Like I don't think you'd have to do anything crazy. Just space out some of the, sound, you know, create some more space with the guitars. Um, yeah, th- I think that's my biggest issue with it. Yeah, I agree. There, there's a number of songs, like you mentioned, where you can hear a lead guitar going on, but it's hard to make it out because the I think the bass is distorted a little bit on those heavier songs. Yep. And then you've got him playing through, I forgot what it was, but I read, but he was, he was playing a guitar that was not designed to be played the way he was. I think it was, let me see, I have the note, Guild Bluesbird. And it had a blown 
tube. He was playing through a, a Fender Super Twin that had a blown tube. And every time he would hit a chord, it would squeal. So they were like dealing with this overheating amp that was constantly squealing. Yep. And it actually, I mean, they captured it at some points of the record and it actually adds to the like chaotic sound, which is kind of cool. But yep. it's so like thick that the when there when he does do a lead unless it's a quieter song or a, or a or not necessarily even a lead but just a a counterpart sometimes it just gets buried in what's going on yeah so you really have to like put on a pair of headphones and focus in on it just to figure out what the heck they're doing yeah i thought uh, it's hard to re- you know review this band and not talk about the rest of the catalog so to me like the anger and all the family issue stories um, it works a lot better when the record, when they have this energy and it's produced this way. If you start thinking later, like he revisits those issues again, uh, um, say father of mine. And when it's produced and it's all super polished like that, I'm like, I don't get it. Like it doesn't work to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here it all makes sense later on when it's more produced, it just feels like, Oh, well, that's angsty and angsty cells and like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem as genuine. Uh, uh, the first time I heard any of that stuff, I wasn't into it. But when I go back and listen to this, I'm like, okay, this is, this feels like real, you know? Um, so I think that aspect of it just lyrically, it matches what it sounds like sonically. Right. And, and comparing it to what would come next with sparkle and fade. Yes. That record is obviously much better sound quality wise much the the guitars are are you know compressed and you get a sharper production but they still bring some energy on that record like you make me feel like a whore is a really heavy song that would have fit and could you know if it had been mixed the way that in and recorded the way that this album was recorded probably would have just fit in well um it's not that far off in terms of its feel and uh, you know, in, in looking back at that record, it's not that it's not that the songwriting is di- much different. Obviously, Santa Monica is a huge single, and that's you know, this set doesn't have a Santa Monica, but it's really just the production that's the difference because a lot of this like his songwriting and his energy on that next record is pretty close. It's on. And they even reference this when you like read his the Wikipedia on this that they made you know so much for the afterglow they made what was the one after that then they made um, that came out in ninety seven and then they did that they did those double out al- that double album where it was songs from American Movie Volume One learning how to smile was the name of the first record and that had um, wonderful remember oh. that song and then they also did a cover of Brown Eyed Girl. For that song, oh. Oh, no, no. but the same year they released uh. songs from an American movie, Volume Two, "Good Time for a Bad Attitude." But what's weird is that they were still releasing singles from the first record when they put out the second record. Which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and then they did "Slow Motion Daydream" in two thousand three, and I think that's when my wife saw them was on that tour, and she said they were. I mean, that's kind of when the band was falling apart. Like it sounded like. Was right around then when the original bass player and then the m- mostly original drummer 
left the band at that point. And a lot of like the guys who were the roadies ended up taking over. And they've had, you know, people from bands like Fuel and the Axes have come in to play. Yeah. And are in the band now. So even um Stacy Jones from American Hi Fi and Vruka Salt was the drummer for a short period. Oh wow. Yeah. So and it, but the point was that when they made when they put out that second American movie volume, um, they wanted to make a heavier record because they were getting lumped in with like Matchbox twenty at that point. But they wanted to make a heavy follow up record. So I haven't heard it. I don't know if it takes them back to this sound or not. I kind of feel like you can't you can't really capture what they did on this record because it's so unique to the circumstance of yeah. being recorded in somebody's basement for 400 bucks. Like that just lends itself to a certain, you know, you have to work fast and other than working at, you know, practice space to put the songs together, you're not going to, you know, it's not going to be the same as having Capitol Records stick you in a studio for hundreds of thousands of dollars and you get to tweak everything and work on a massive board and work with producers and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I want to touch on the bass playing a little bit. Just uh, that that jumped out to me for sure in my notes when I listened to it um, to the point where it was a little um, confusing <laughs> in that. I, I didn't realize this bass player was even capable of playing these types of bass lines. I know. Uh, different tones. Uh, you hear things that are like um, uh, harmonics. You hear, you know, complicated lines, you know, where the, you know, they, they move around a lot. Um, a lot of movement here. Um, so, and in some ways he's he's carrying a lot of these songs, which I think listening to it now maybe what they did going forward from this record is that um the guitar riffs kind of took over those super simple that mm-hmm. Santa Monica riff and then they as opposed to in this record I think it feels like the bass is playing the riff and then the guitar is playing like an accent um role almost where the chords will be off the bass line or they'll come together just for the loud part um yep. So I just find that dynamic much more compelling uh, and interesting, and uh, I think it works a lot better um, just for me. From a, I think a mileage standpoint, you know, you can you get more out of it. There's more to dig into and understand and sure. be moved by. Whereas you know, to me, if you just take Santa Monica as an example, that's just a one note, monotonous right. <laughs> riff, you know. Uh, and there's not a whole lot for the bass player to do in that. Nope. Right now. So, uh, I really, I picked up on that right away on this record and appreciated it for sure. When you have a song like Santa Monica, maybe you can throw in a little flourish at like the end of a line, but really yep. you just have to stick to whatever the guitar's doing. Cause it's the way that yeah. that progression works. You can't like noodle around. It's not, those are quick changing chords and you've got to like, you know, yeah, do you got to stick with it? Um, so anything glaring that didn't work for you other than the mix? No, I think it's really just the mix. You know, it can be a difficult record to get into from that standpoint. It's not. Right. It's a little, to me, it was a little harsh 
Um, I have some allergies right now, so my ears are a little bit sensitive, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't able to crank this up as much as I normally would. I just found it to be like uh, some of it, particularly the first couple songs, you know, to to hurt a little bit. So that's my biggest criticism of it. I, I would love to hear it. Just just do a little remix of it. Um, and I think it would be um, much better. All right. We don't have to do Why Wasn't This Bigger because this was released on a tiny label and they blew up on the next record. So mm-hmm. let's jump to Worthy Album, Better EP, Decent Single. Where do you land on this? I'm in a Worthy Album. Um, Interesting. Gary, you've been redeemed. <laughs> Uh, if we were to do the second uh, the record after this, I don't I don't know that I'd be there. But uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I think this is a worthy album. I, I think it's a like a, started to show off with. I think it's a they have their own take on it, and it works. Um, you know, he's a super talented guy. Uh, he, you know, he's done a lot of things that I we've talked about. Me, Katie, a lot of people other don't don't like, but there's no doubt that the guy has talent. Oh yeah, and that comes through. On this record, plus you just get like this just raw, angsty energy. So you put those two things together, and, and you usually have a pretty good formula. I didn't mention it in the early part, but he's also gone on to be a songwriter for other people. Right. Like so many 90s people have like Dan Wilson from Semisonic and the guy from Fountains of Wayne. Like those guys all. A lot of those guys that were in, you know, bands that had a couple singles, they turned that into something. I also agree with you. I think this is a worthy record. It's unique in the catalog because of how raw it sounds. And I think it shows off some of the songwriting that kind of got shelved as the band moved forward. And it really shows an interesting side to his songwriting and, and his approach to, um, I guess, you know, 90s Pacific Northwest uh, influenced grunge if i don't know if it's really it's not i wouldn't say it's a grunge record just sort of sits in that same space that uh because of the production but his lyrical content and and storytelling is pretty unique so it was an it was fun to go back and revisit because i hadn't listened to it a long time so i know uh i know i think mr jeff takis is a huge fan of this record so hopefully he we have calmed him with our, our positive take on this. So I know he was worried. So like Gary, if you are listening and you would like to suggest a record for us to check out, you can just go to digmeoutpodcast.com and go to the album suggestion page, put in your album suggestion and, and some comments about why you're picking the record and it'll end up in a poll down the road, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, we get some good, really great recommendations too, so it's fun. And then, uh, if you want to vote, get over there, and yep, you can make the call. And of course, you can go to Patreon to support the podcast and vote in these polls, as well as get bonus content like our '80s episodes and lots of other fun stuff. That's at dmounion.com. Dig me out, union.com. You'd be able to listen to us record this episode live and hear us do the first 10 minutes. Twice. <laughs> Twice. Because I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. But you didn't get to hear that because 
you weren't a patron. It's all right. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Now, so